uh, more on the, the birth of Christ, and we'll do that in just a moment. Uh, but let me give you real quick to some announcements. First is that we're still collecting prayer requests uh, for the 2022 prayer booklet. So if you haven't submitted those, uh, then you can write them down and either hand them to me or, or Brooke. There she is. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Oh, thank you. All right. Never mind. Scratch that. I'll move on to the next one. Uh, next announcement, just a reminder that we will have our Christmas Eve service. We'll be here at 6.30 p.m. at the church. Uh, also, uh, want to just, uh, for those of you who may not be a part of a community group, can I just encourage you to be a part of one? Uh, quite personally, uh, as wonderful as it is to be here on Sunday mornings to fellowship with the church, uh, I don't think that is enough, and I, th- I don't think we should be uh, content with that only. Uh, but seek out community and fellowship uh, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and the community groups are a wonderful way to do that, to share prayer requests and pray for one another and uh, just open up the scriptures. Um, and if you have any questions about that, then please uh, feel free to, to, to ask me after the service. Uh, also, uh, uh, as many of you know, that we do have a, a church podcast where we put out the, the sermon each week, but aside from that, I also put out several episodes each month uh, related to a particular book that I'm reading for that month, and uh, I will be putting out a new list of books uh, for 2022. I always encourage people to, you know, if you find a book interesting, then read it along with me and let me know. Uh, if not, uh, these podcast episodes are really helpful to kind of uh, glean some, uh, some helpful things uh, from the particular book, things that you can apply into your life, and they are from a different... Uh, range of books from uh, Christian books to secular books, uh, from uh, Puritans to uh, Christians who are still alive today, uh, to just a broad spectrum of different topics. And so I just uh, commend that to you as a valuable, uh, I think it's a valuable uh, resource. And then lastly, um, please put your phones on silent. Uh, Just remember to, if you have a phone, if you haven't remembered, just Take it out right now, put it on vibrate or do not disturb or silence. Uh, it's just uh, helpful for everyone around and as a way to show respect to, you know, who want to just worship the Lord and listen to his word and pray with God's people without uh, those distractions. And so, uh, so those are all the announcements I have. Uh, as I said, uh, it is the Advent season and so one of the ways that we sort of focus on the birth of Christ during this season is by having an Advent reading before the, um, as an introduction to our service. And we have an Advent reading followed by a short prayer. And so this morning, I want to um, invite uh, Ron and Nancy Gentini to, to come up. They'll do our Advent reading and a short prayer, and then we will go on with the, uh, the rest of our service. I'm nervous. Good. It's on. Okay. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. 
and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. One night in a town called Nazareth, an angel of the Lord visited Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph. In his visit, he announced the coming Savior who would be born through miraculous conception in her very womb. Mary would go on to praise the Lord and magnify his name. Why? Mary magnified the Lord because she considered herself to be highly favored by God, though she had done nothing to deserve such favor. Mary considered herself to be loved by God, and her giving birth to the Savior of the world was evidence of the love of God in her life. In response, she worshiped. But Mary was not the only one who was favored by God. In fact, the world itself would be the object of the love of God. For the scriptures tell us that it was unto us that the Savior was given. Verse 50 tell us that God's mercy is for those who fear him. The mercy of God is personalized in the person of the Savior, who is Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is the mercy of God, he is also the physical representation and manifestation of the love of God towards sin. What was considered to be the love of God toward a particular person in giving her the honor to carry in her womb the Savior of the world was intended to point to something much greater, namely God's love for sinners who were in desperate need of divine mercy. During the season, let us, like Mary, consider ourselves highly blessed and favored by God because of his giving unto us his son, Jesus Christ, and let us magnify the Lord. Friends, let's bow and pray. Oh God, as we consider the profundity of your great mercy towards us, we cannot help but feel humbled that the great God of heaven should be so gracious, compassionate, and loving. towards sinners like us is something that leaves us speechless. And the only appropriate response to such great love is to worship. Today, Father, as we come together as your church in this season as we celebrate Advent, 
We pray that our worship in response to your great love would match the rejoicing of Mary in her prayer of praise. And we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to glorify you just as the choir of angels in heaven worshipped when the Savior of the world was born. We honor you and we praise you for the great love with which you have loved us. We love you, O Lord, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship this morning. Our call to worship comes out of Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Amen. Let's worship. together. Oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, come all ye
Things sing amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was grace. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first began. 
sing together, my chains. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Worship him. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. Father, we are grateful, grateful for the cross where we can stand before you now, Lord, forgiven. God, we thank you for the hope in Christ Jesus. We thank you, God, that we can say that our chains are gone, that we have been set free by the blood of Jesus, your son. And our Savior, I pray, God, for this time now in prayer and in your word. May you lead us. May you be edified. May we be encouraged. May you be glorified in all things. We praise you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. I'm going to read to us from 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, and then we'll will pray. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord, just as we sang a moment ago, we, we plead, we ask that you would come. Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Return, O Lord, to bring us to yourself, to gather up your bride, the, Christ, the church, that you may establish your everlasting peace. So your church prays and asks that you would come, O Lord. And Father, as we set our minds to you this morning, through prayer and through singing, through the reading of your word, and in the reading of this particular passage in 1 John, we read at least twice that you loved us. While you are a God who is passionate for your glory, who is in the pursuit of his own glory, who is working out all things for your glory, and is even bringing the end of all things ultimately for your great glory, and even have saved us for your own glory, we read here also in 1 John that you saved us because you loved us. You sent forth your Son into the world, not because we merited your favor, not out of obligation, not on a whim, not because you simply felt like it. No, you sent your Son into the world in order that we might live through Him and that He might be the propitiation for our sins because you loved us. Your Son has been sent into the world in order to reclaim what was lost, to restore what was once defaced and marred, to mend what was once broken to reconcile what was once in hostility. And all of these things were accomplished because you so loved us. Lord, because of such great love, how then can we not be loving towards others? How can we withhold from others that which you so freely and so lavishly have given to us in Christ? Lord, Forgive us for those moments when we have failed to love others. Forgive us for those moments that when we have failed to extend mercy and forgiveness and kindness, forgetting that we ourselves have received so much kindness and mercy and so much love through the cross of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the moments in our lives, maybe even at this very point, at this very moment when we might be apathetic or unfeeling or even cold, when we should instead be filled with love. Lord, forgive us for the times when we love the things that we should not love, for the times when we even love our own sins. Father, help us to love those whom you love and help us to love the things which you love, such as your word, 
such as holiness, the church, prayer, and especially Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you might fan a great flame in our hearts for the love of Christ and for the love of others. God, as we think about the holiday and the Advent season, Lord, help us to remember the great love with which you loved us, which is shown to us in the baby born in a manger through the Virgin Mary. This isn't just a historical event, but this is also the story of how you pursued your people by sending your Son in the likeness of man. Lord, as we think about this story and this miraculous event, may we in turn extend and show great grace and great love towards others. May those who experience during this holiday season the reopening of old wounds, perhaps because of lost loved ones, God, we pray for them. We pray that they may remember to look to the birth of Christ and be reminded of the great love that you have for your people. And may they draw comfort from Christ. Father, we pray for those in our country who have, uh, have experienced tragedy over the past few weeks, Lord. For those who will be in sorrow instead of rejoicing in this holiday season. Father, we pray that your comfort would come upon their hearts. We pray that love would surround them, the love of friends, the love of family. Most of all, Lord, we pray that they might know the love of Christ. Lord, would you draw them to yourself? God, would you help them and guard them and protect their hearts. Lord, give them peace and give them the strength, Lord, to endure. Help them, Lord, in their agony. Lord, we trust you for all of these things. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, turn to the book of Jonah. We're in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 1 to 10, so the entirety of chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh 
by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Praise the Lord. Father, we pray that you would show us yourself, that you would show us Christ, that you would show us your great mercy and kindness. Lord, may we not leave here this morning without some kind of change or transformation in our hearts because of your great mercy. We pray that your word would have that kind of effect in the lives of your people. In my own life, as I preach this passage, that you would do so by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mercy is, is risk. Whenever you are merciful towards someone, you're putting yourself in a pretty vulnerable position, a position to perhaps be taken advantage of, a position to be betrayed once more, putting yourself in a position that where somebody might take advantage of that mercy. Because you don't always have any guarantee that the person who has come with you, who has come towards you with mercy, that they will change. And so that's the great risk of mercy. And considering God and the mercy of God, God also takes that risk into consideration because when he is merciful towards sinners, there is always the chance that some might use the mercy of God as a license for sin, that some might use the mercy of God as something to be taken advantage of, that some, and many do, instead of embracing the mercy of God, would actually go and reject the mercy of God. We've been turning to the book of Jonah the past couple of weeks, taking it chapter by chapter, or episode by episode, and today we are in chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, and time and time again, continue to see the mercy of God, and in this particular episode, in this two-part episode, there are a lot of different responses here on account of the mercy of God, and so I want to walk you through some of these responses to the mercy of God. So for the first part, the shocking response of the city. So we've been following along with us for the past couple of weeks, or if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, where we, Jonah is a prophet called by God to preach against the city of Nineveh, and instead of running towards Nineveh, he runs in the opposite direction, gets on a boat, and in that boat, in the middle of the sea, God causes a great storm that threatens the lives of Jonah and the sailors. Jonah reluctantly confesses that he is the reason why this disaster has come upon them, and they have to do what they are unwilling to do at first, and that is they toss the prophet overboard. And once they do, the seas calm, and then the prophet of God is swallowed up by the great fish, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and from that belly he prays to God. 
And in that prayer, we saw it as a prayer of casting himself upon the Lord, a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance. And then we come to chapter 3. which is in response to what happened in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, it tells us that the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon, upon dry land. And then it says in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So what we have here is sort of a recommissioning of the prophets. It's, a, it's almost the exact same words that we see in chapter 1 when Jonah receives the first call of God and receives the call again. So the words of the prophets in the belly of the great fish is heard by the Lord, and he's restored. He's renewed. He's called back to his original position. He's receiving a second chance. to go and proclaim the message of God to the people of Nineveh. And you wouldn't, ex- you wouldn't necessarily expect that. I mean, that he's obviously undeserving to be in that kind of position, to be once again the prophet of God. He was disobedient this entire time, but God restores him. Right, but isn't this what the gospel is, a gospel message of renewal? a message of rebirth, a message of a second chance. As I, growing up, I used to play a lot of video games, and I remember one particular ad where you're, for a particular game where you're, you're playing a hero, and in the ad it says, you play this hero who, uh, whose job is to save the world, but if he should fail, you can always hit the reset button. Start all over again. Start back where you last left off and take another chance at it, right? The gospel message is sort of a reset button for those who come, upon the, come to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance, that they can be reborn and they can have a new life, get a second chance to live life like they were intent, originally intended to, and that is to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this. In verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, though, behold, the new has come. So the disobedient prophet prays to the Lord. He is restored. He receives a second chance because God is a God of second chances. But his task doesn't change. Right? He's still called to preach a message that is difficult to swallow. And so he goes into the city, and it tells us that Nineveh was a great city. Not only that, but an exceedingly great city. It tells us it's three days' journey in breadth. Either it means that it takes you three days to kind of see all there is in it, or that it actually takes you three days to walk the entire length of the city, which I think is actually what it's intended to, to tell us. A vast city filled with with a lot of people, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. It probably would have been the largest city on the planet at that day. It tells us that Jonah goes a day's journey into the city, and he preaches, meaning that as he's going a day's journey into the city, he's 
proclaiming the message of God. Saying, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not an easy message. A message of judgment. I mean, think for a moment on the kind of courage that it takes to preach that kind of message. Now, some scholars will even are persuaded that there was even some hostility between the Ninevites and the Jews. So if you imagine a Jew, a prophet of God, going into hostile territory, into enemy territory, and telling them that God's judgment is coming. But even if that were not the case, anybody would be frightened to go into a city and proclaim the message of God, particularly a message of judgment. I mean, there's a fear of shame, fear of rejection, fear of being made fun of. For Jonah, it might have been a fear of being imprisoned, a fear of being perhaps killed. Surely, there must have been a temptation in his heart to soften the message. How can I take, how can I take this message and still proclaim it in a way that is still consistent with the original message that God gave me, but in a way that I can sort of protect myself? Really, that's the temptation of all preachers. When you're called to preach the message, when you're called to preach the word of God, when you're called to preach the gospel concerning sin and repentance, and judgment, that's certainly a temptation I always struggle with week after week. Because of fear of perhaps being disliked, fear of people walking away. It's a temptation to soften the message. And there are certainly many false preachers in the world who preach, because of fear, preach a message of salvation without repentance. There are many false preachers in the world who preach a message of forgiveness without requiring the, for, the forsaking of sin. There are many preachers in the world who preach a gospel without divine judgment, but without divine judgment, there is no gospel. It's called the good news for a reason. Peter at Pentecost, Peter, by the way, who was a man who was afraid when he was asked repeatedly, weren't you with Jesus? Weren't you with Jesus? Ran away. No, I wasn't. And here then is later on, Peter at Pentecost preaching in Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see what he said? Preaching to a crowd of people, looking at them square in the eye, and says, You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. And what's the response? When they heard this, it says that they were cut to the heart. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Repent, turn to Jesus in faith. Be baptized as a response to your faith in Jesus and you will be forgiven of your sins. Repent and turn to Christ and you will receive the mercy of God. Jesus as well required great boldness and courage to preach a message of salvation, pointing people to himself in John chapter 6. Saying again and again, he's a bread of life, that you must come to me, you must believe in me if you are to receive eternal life. And we see the sort of the, the response of the crowds that gradually becomes worse and worse. They were frustrated, they grumbled, ultimately they became angry and they walked away from Jesus. But that's not the only response. We see also in other places in the Gospels that the religious teachers, the Pharisees, became so angry with the message of Jesus that they even desired to kill him. And here is Jonah preaching unashamedly and courageously, but I'm sure not without fear, a message of divine judgment to an entire city. And it seems to be by the response that it was the right message at the right time. And then we get to this shocking response from the people. It tells us that the people of Nineveh believed God. It didn't say they believed Jonah. It didn't say that they believed the words of Jonah. They, no, it says they believed God. Because to receive the message of God from his instrument is to receive God himself, is to receive the word of God itself. They took God at his word. They believed in him. In Matthew 10, Jesus, speaking on the context of persecution, he says that whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And so whoever preaches the gospel and it is received, they're not essentially receiving the person who's, doing the, who's proclaiming the message. No, they're receiving Jesus. And should anyone reject the one who's delivering the word of God, they're essentially not delivering the messenger. No, they're, re they're, they're rejecting the one who's the author of that message. They believed God, even though it was a hard message to swallow. I mean, imagine a doctor. You go to a doctor because something's wrong. You notice something is wrong with you. And he, he takes you out. He does tests, whatever. He does the research, and he comes back, and he realizes that there's something terminally wrong with you. Could you imagine that doctor sitting down with you and saying, hey, you're fine. You're going to be okay. You have nothing to worry about. You're going to live a long, healthy life. I mean, how uncaring do you have to be to not tell somebody the truth? How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them the truth? But telling the truth, sometimes it's an act of mercy. And rather than these people rejecting the message, they took God at his word and they believed. And they repented. The gospel is the great news of salvation. Praise the Lord for that. But it is a message that is difficult to proclaim. And so how do we proclaim that message in a hostile world? Right? How can we withhold from others what has been boldly proclaimed to us? 
few things to consider. One, draw courage from the examples of the Scriptures. Look to the prophet Jonah. Look to the other prophets in the Old Testament. Look to the book of Acts and the apostles who continue to preach the gospel in the midst of adversity. Draw courage from their examples. Secondly, pray for boldness. Boldness is something that the Lord gives to his people. It is what the apostles prayed for when Peter and others were preaching the gospel and they were detained by the religious teachers and then they were released after having been threatened for preaching Christ. It says in Acts 4.23, they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And then they begin to pray. Then in verse 27, as they are praying to the Lord, they say, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Even the apostles needed boldness from the Lord. Boldness is something we should pray for. Another way to draw courage is from the mercy of God. How was Jonah able to go to the Ninevites and preach this message of judgment with such courage? And I think it's because he's been transformed by the mercy of God. How did Paul, the Apostle Paul, become such a courageous preacher? Because the Lord confronted him as he was on his way to persecute other Christians. The Lord revealed himself and he was transformed by the mercy of God. How were the apostles able to preach such a message with boldness? Because they were transformed by the mercy of the Lord. In the Gospels, Jesus casts out the demons of a particular man. In Luke 8.38, it tells us that the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Doesn't that sound similar to what Jonah did? Going throughout the whole city and preaching. This man was called by Jesus to go to your city. Go throughout the whole city and proclaim how much the Lord has done for you. Proclaim the mercy of God. We draw boldness and encouragement to continue to preach the gospel when we consider how much God has done for us. When we consider how much we have been forgiven. When we consider how merciful has God been to us. We go out and proclaim to the world, look at how great my God has been to me. So a people that you might come to expect to harden their hearts to a message of judgment, instead, shockingly, turn to God in repentance. Which then leads us to the second part of this episode, the shocking response of God. But before we get to God's response, notice the response of the king. 
of Nineveh. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Nor is the king's act, his actions. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and issued a proclamation throughout the whole city. This is the king who doesn't care about approval ratings. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care to tickle men's ears. He doesn't, he's not concerned about how he might be perceived. He takes off his royal robes, a thing that distinguishes him from the rest of the people. And instead, he puts on sackcloth, identifying with everybody else and he makes a citywide proclamation, probably through a town crier, a herald that would go into the most popular parts of the cities to declare the message of the king. Hear ye, hear ye. These are the words of the king. Everyone, abstain from drink and food. Put on sackcloth. Put on ashes. And cry out mightily to God pleading for the mercy of God for the judgment that is coming upon us. He declares a city-wide repentance through fasting. Fasting as a way of declaring to the Lord how desperate they are. And that's essentially what fasting is. Though it looks a little bit differently today in this side of the cross, but back then, Especially fasting was a cry of desperation. It's a crying out to God and saying, God, I need this to happen. God, I want this to happen. God, my hands cannot do this. I need some kind of miracle. God, I need this that my hands cannot produce. Will you come? Will you act? Will you intercede? Because I cannot do it on my own. And to come to God and fasting to abstain from food and drink. Right? Essentially, you are abstaining from pleasure. But if you've ever been in sort of deep sorrow, then you know what it's like when you don't, you've lost of appetite, you don't want to eat or drink anything. Not only because of the loss of appetite, but also because eating is a form of pleasure. Eating is a form of satisfaction. You typically enjoy, or you should enjoy what you eat, but when you are in deep sorrow and in anguish and crying out to the Lord, you don't want to experience any kind of enjoyment or pleasure or satisfaction. And this is what the fasting is. God, we do not want to take pleasure in anything because what we want is a divine intervention. We want your mercy. Now, the strange thing is that they also, he also calls out the animals in fasting. Why is that? Now, people have different opinions as to why that is. Nobody has sort of reached a consensus of, as to why there is a requirement of the animals to fast as well. I mean, they don't even understand what they're doing. 
But here's, I think, a reason or why they might call the animals themselves to fast as well. Because animals were a source of income. Not only that, but they were income. I mean, a, a person's net worth was largely determined by how much cattle they owned. And to force your animals, not only was your income, but also your means of generating income, to not eat or drink anything for a set period of time could make them sick. Not only that, but it also means that you're not working them to produce an income for yourself. And so in their calling their animals to fast as well, they're putting everything on the line. God, we're putting our income, we're putting our means of generating an income before you to declare to you how desperate we are for your mercy, for your kindness to come upon us and relent of your justice and wrath towards us. It was a way for the entire city to come before the Lord and mightily cry out to God. And God responds. Now, why such a special attention towards the city of Nineveh? In all the world, why does Nineveh get a special attention from the Lord? I mean, we know that it was an exceedingly great city. We also know that there, were, there was wickedness in the city as well. And we can assume that the reason why Jonah was called to preach against Nineveh was because of their sins. And it tells us that the city, at least later in chapter 4, that there were at least 120,000 persons in the entire city. So God called Jonah to come to Nineveh and preach this message, which was itself an act of mercy. I mean, if you're familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, also great cities, they were obliterated from the face of the planet because of their great wickedness. They didn't receive a prophet to come before them and preach a message of judgment. And only the Lord knows why he did not do so. But he does differently, he relates differently to the city of Nineveh. And warnings are a mercy from God. They really are. In the book of Hebrews, you have several warnings given to believers. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. Continue in the faith. They're caution signs help us to wake up, to remember that we must continue to walk in the faith. So Nineveh, given that it was such a large city with so many people, would have also been, there would have also been a high concentration of sin. Cities in themselves are not bad, but we have a large amount of people gathering together in a certain region, in a particular location, well, there tends to be a high concentration of sin. Not that there isn't sin in the suburbs, but in cities, they're much worse because there are many more people. And given the vastness of the city of Nineveh, given how many people there were, their wickedness has captured the attention of the Lord. And so God gave them a special attention, but just as their concentration of sin and wickedness captured the attention of the Lord, God also could not reject such a high concentration of repentance. It tells us when God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. God showed them mercy. And it's, in a way, it's kind of scandalous that the wicked people of Nineveh, those who do not deserve it, that they would come out in repentance before the Lord and God would show them mercy. But that is what mercy is, isn't it? To extend grace to those who do not deserve it. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Almost nobody will die, or nobody will die for somebody that they know is wicked. Even we ourselves, we might withhold mercy from others. Sometimes our mercy runs out, doesn't it? But God was merciful to those who were wicked and deserving of his judgment. And what we've seen throughout the book of Jonah, that he was merciful towards Jonah, merciful towards these sailors who are on the brink of death out in the middle of the sea, merciful again and again to Jonah. And now he's merciful to the people of Nineveh who come out in repentance and call out to the Lord mightily for his divine mercy. And such is the mercy of God. That time and time and time again, that no matter how often we have to come to him, he is always merciful. That no matter how often we show ourselves undeserving of the mercy of God, God still remains merciful. Knowing how vividly the book of Jonah highlights the mercy of God, how can we not then continually Turn to the Lord, who is so gracious and so merciful towards us. And we can come up, with a, come up with a lot of excuses, a lot of reasons for not coming to the Lord. John Bunyan once wrote a book called Come and Welcome to Christ. And the entire book is written with one verse in mind, and that is John 6.37, where Jesus says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You and I do a lot of things or neglect to do a lot of things that we feel might impede us from coming to Christ. We think of our sins. We think that we have sinned. We cannot come before the Lord. We think that we have too many sins. We think that our sin or one particular sin might be too grave to come before the Lord Jesus. Perhaps you have spent too much time fasting from the word and in prayer. You just become accustomed to it. Now you feel like it's an impediment to you coming to Christ. Sometimes you might feel like you are too ashamed to come to Christ. And in John Bunyan's book, he lists so many, so many objections that we can come up with that might impede us from coming to such a merciful and gracious 
God who wants nothing but his people to come to him. And when I say, but I am a great sinner, but I am an old sinner, but I am a hard-hearted sinner, but I am a backsliding sinner, but I have served Satan all my days, but I have sinned against life, but I have sinned against mercy, but I have sinned against my wife, but I have sinned against my husband, but I have sinned against my children, but I have sinned against my family member, but I have sinned against the church, I have sinned against my brother or sister, I have sinned against this person, I have sinned against God. I have no good thing to bring before the Lord and to every single one of those objections, Christ says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will never cast out. Be encouraged by Hebrews 5.2 where it says that Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The ignorant and wayward, that is the one who sins unintentionally That is when you sin unintentionally. You don't mean to sin. And those who also sin intentionally, that is, you know that this is a sin and you do it anyway. That Jesus deals gently with both who come to him. John Owen says, this means that he can no more cast off poor sinners for their ignorance and wanderings than a nursing father should cast away a suckling child for its crying. Thus ought it to be with a high priest, and thus it is with Jesus Christ. He is able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear with the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people, even as a nurse or a nursing father bears with the weakness of a poor infant. 2 Corinthians 1.3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the Father of the God of all comforts. God isn't just merciful. God doesn't just do mercy, but God is mercy. It tells us in the passage that mercy is intrinsic to the character of God, that God cannot help but be merciful because it is who he is. And he is that to all those who come to Christ. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You've come across people in your life who are not merciful, people that you might never expect to be merciful, no matter what reasons you come up with, no matter the the things that you might experience, that no matter what the thing is, that person is just never going to be merciful and understand and be forgiving. And that's terrible and that is sad. But even we ourselves, right, sometimes we tend to allow our mercy to run out. But Ephesians 2 tells us that God is rich in mercy. In other words, his mercy never runs out. So that no matter how often you come to Christ, he's always merciful. That God does not get tired 
of being merciful to those who come to him. If you're here this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus in a personal way, the message of Jonah, this message of judgment is still relevant today. The judgment of God is still there. The judgment of God is upon all those who do not come to Jesus in faith and repentance. But there is mercy if you would come to Christ. That if you would draw near to Christ, heed this message of judgment, take it seriously, and come to Christ. Come to Christ. And you might say, well, my life is a mess. I've made many sins in my life. I've made many grave sins in my life. I've hurt a lot of people in my life. But Jesus answers those objections and says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so, dear Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we think about the mercy of God, a couple of things to remember. One thing we must remember with regards to the mercy of God is that mercy is never a license for sin. We must never take advantage of the mercy of God. But no, the mercy of God requires us to repent of sin, to mortify sin, to fast from sin, to flee from sin. And this is what the mercy of Christ transforms us to be able to do, to be able to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Romans chapter 2 tells us, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When you have come to truly understand and experience the mercy of God and how you have been forgiven so much, it transforms you to want to live a life that is honoring to the one who has been so merciful to you. The mercy of God in Christ is much more than just this intellectual truth to be understood or this fact to be embraced, but no, it is a transformative reality. Once you experience the mercy of God, it leaves you forever changed. The other thing, the last thing we must remember with regards to the mercy of God is that when you do sin, not if you sin, but when you do sin, and maybe you sin on your way here, maybe you've sinned this morning as we've been here, maybe you'll sin when you walk out of these doors. When you do sin, no matter how you feel, no matter what your objections might be, even if you feel apathetic towards your sin, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Because he will deal gently with you. That's what he says in his word. And he is that way because he is the God of love. Christ understands your weaknesses better than you do. God even hates your sin more than you ever will. But Christ also loves you more than any person ever could. So don't stop going to Christ. No matter how much you sin, no matter how grave the sin might be, continue to go to Christ. Does not the mercy of God 
towards the sailors in the middle of the ocean compel you to come to Christ? Does not the mercy of God towards his wayward prophet draw you to Christ? Does not the mercy of God towards the wicked Ninevites invite you to come to Christ? Christ loves you with an invincible love. And he knows how to deal gently with those who come to him. So draw near to him and come to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you are such a gracious and merciful Savior. That you understand our weaknesses. Lord, I thank you that you, just, you don't just forbear with us. That we are not just a people that you put up with. But you are a God who loves us. You have adopted us as your sons and daughters. And just as a loving father will not cast away his child, so you will never cast us out. May we continue to come before you. No matter the objections that we come up with in our hearts, let us remember the words of John 6, 37, where Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses and in our sins to continue to come to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand in response to today's message. Let's come to Christ. a show and dress in righteous deeds to hide all the stains below we have judged your sons and daughters for the sin that is our own and may we now forgive each other and lay down our stones and sing forgiven 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 the blood of Christ we are forgiven. Let's sing to him. And Lord, forgive us for our love of the things we wish to own. And we forsake the feast above for all the crumbs below. And though you've made us sons and daughters, we do not the world disown. May we find our greatest treasure is in you alone. Let's sing. Praise him. Forgiven, forgiven. Through the blood of Christ we are forgiven. Forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. We are forgiven.
And Lord, forgive us for our shame when we can't release the past and when we're quick to take the blame but forget we're free at last and we avoid your sons and daughters for the fear we don't belong and give us eyes to see each other through your only son yes lord praise god sing forgiven forgiven through the blood of Christ we are forgiven 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 through the blood of Christ we are forgiven sing to him church together we are forgiven one more time forgiven thank you forgiven thank you father through the blood of christ we are forgiven we worship you lord praise god for he has interceded our judgment and has made a divine intervention in graciously pouring his mercy on us by the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your generous mercy. We thank you and we, for we can now stand before you, Lord, in repentance and forgiven. Lord, may we not forget this undeserving mercy and love of God. To God be the glory. Church, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you, church. You're dismissed.